Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. So I am an 80s kid. I was born in 1986. I'm 31, for those of you who are trying to figure it out in your head. And I grew up with all the great things of the late 80s and the early 90s. I listened to Vanilla Ice. I listened to MC Hammer. My favorite TV shows were Ghostbusters, Ninja Turtles, Transformers, G.I. Joe, all the classics. And right now, everyone is talking about how Avengers Infinity War is the best crossover to ever happen, and I completely disagree. Ninja Turtles and Vanilla Ice is the best crossover to ever happen. Now, I know if you've seen the movie, it's the second one in there, uh, and it's a scene where they're all fighting, and then all of a sudden, like, Vanilla Ice is in the middle of a rap concert, and the Ninja Turtles are, like, beating all these people up. And I know for most of you who remember that scene, uh, it's one where as you watch it, you'll know the rap, right? Go ninja, go ninja, go, go ninja, go ninja, go. Earlier today, one of our friends asked me if I knew like the vanilla ice thing. I don't, and I would never do that in front of you. (laughs) I remember as a kid watching this movie with my family and losing my mind when this happened, right? Because we had no idea. This was pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook. We didn't know that this mashup would happen. And as a kid who grew up in the 80s and 90s, there's this weird phenomenon happening right now. I feel like I'm living in the golden age of my childhood. Vanilla Ice is back on tour. He also has a TV show, Rehabbing Home. Some of you watch it. I'm not judging you. It's okay. And remakes of all of my favorite TV shows are hitting the big screen. New Ghostbusters, new Ninja Turtles, new G.I. Joe. And to be honest, I don't care how terrible they are. I watch all of them usually alone, because my wife does not feel the same way about these shows that I do. But one of the childhood classics that I loved the most was the movie Transformers. In 2007, when it hit the big screen, I went multiple times. Don't judge me. And the first time I saw the Transformers movie, I was home from college for summer break. I was working in Maryland as a contractor. My buddy Curtis and I, we decided to go check it out. And honestly, I felt like I was nine years old. I was freaking out. I grabbed my Juji Fruits. I don't care if you think they're gross. I love them. And we got there early so we could grab a seat in the middle of the middle. But before the movie even started, Curtis started to get some text messages from his current girlfriend. He texted her back to let her know that he was was at a movie with me, but she kept texting. To be honest, she kind of always hated me, so that made sense. After a few minutes of texting, he was put his phone back in his pocket. Buzz, buzz, buzz. His phone just continued to go nuts. Something wasn't good, so he ignored her, and the movie started. We were about 25 minutes into the movie when she decided to stop texting and to start calling over and over again. Finally, he got up to head out to talk to her, vowing that he would be right back. But five minutes turned to 20, and 20 turned to 45. He finally walked back in just in time to watch the final five minutes of the movie. Then the lights came up, and the credits started to roll. I apologized to him uh, that he had to miss part of the movie, and I started to stand up so that we could leave, but he wasn't moving. I looked at him, I was like, hey man, you know, we we can leave now. There was no response. After a few moments of silence, he looked at me and said, I paid for this movie and I'm going to watch all of it. So as the credits started to roll, the movie began to empty out, but Curtis wasn't moving. 
A few minutes in, the theater was mostly empty, and that's when the credits just stopped. And if you remember the movie, you'll know, like halfway through the credits, it pauses, and there's an extra scene. But we didn't know this was coming, so this was 2007. This was pre, when people were on Twitter, really, this was pre-Facebook, so the world hadn't ruined it ahead of time. It was kind of one of those things that was a complete shock to us. And so there's this extra scene, and it shows Starscream fly away, escaping Earth and flying into space, and he says, I'll be back. And this was a complete shock for everybody, like the six of us that were left in the movie theater, because we all thought that character was dead. And it kind of pushed that movie and pushed that story a little bit further. A few weeks later, we were back at college, and we were talking about how epic the movie was. At that point, I think I'd seen it in theaters like three or four times. And Curtis asked everyone that was sitting with us at lunch what they thought about the teaser during the credits. And immediately, we all started to share our stories, like our theories about what was happening, what was going to happen next, who that was, what did he say, all those things. And at the end of our conversation, as it started to die down, our friend Josh spoke up and said, what end credits scene? He missed it. When the movie faded to black and the credits started to roll, he got up and he walked out. And if you remember the movie, he kind of missed the most important part. Today, we are celebrating Easter by closing out our series called Hope Rising. The idea is that we could all use a little hope. And so if you're feeling hopeless or lost, or like you're in the midst of a storm that you can't get out of, today is for you. If you feel like you're all alone in this world, today is for you. If you're in a relationship where you feel ignored or underappreciated, today is for you. If you're experiencing pain from loss of a loved one, a job, or simply the loss of joy, today is for you. Because today is a day where we learn that the promise of hope that Jesus made can be trusted. Jesus' death fulfilled the promise that a Savior would come. But Jesus' resurrection proved that we can trust those promises. The promises that God loves us, that God is for us, that hope is real, that we can be free from our sin because Jesus paid that debt. And even though we don't deserve it, it's called grace. Grace shows us that there is nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. And these are promises that God made. And Jesus rising from the dead should give us confidence that these promises can be true in our own lives as well. And so last week, we read through the story of Jesus' death. He was betrayed by a friend. He was arrested by Jewish leaders, his own people. He was humiliated and mocked. He was beaten and then put up on a cross. But the story didn't end there. And when we only focus on the death of Jesus, when we let his story stop right there, we miss the best part. The scene ends with Jesus dying on a cross. The credits roll. But three days later, the world changes forever. After Jesus' death, his body is taken off the cross, and then he's treated to a Jewish burial custom of wrapping it in linen and incense. And right around where Jesus was crucified, there's actually an empty tomb that had never been used before that belonged to a man named Joseph. And so Joseph offers up his tomb, and he says, Jesus can be buried there. And once Jesus was placed inside the tomb, a large boulder was placed in front of it to stop people from attempting to steal his body. And that's where we pick up the story today. We're going to start in John 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so three days later, Mary goes to visit the tomb. But when she arrives, she sees that the stone is rolled away and Jesus' body was gone. 
And so Mary is the first person to witness that. She's the first person to see that the tomb is empty, and this is huge. Now, Mary was a very common name in biblical times, and it's important to know that this is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is a different person. This is Mary Magdalene. And we first meet Mary Magdalene in Luke 8. And this is what Luke writes about the, the first time we hear about Mary. Luke writes this, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons, demons had come out. And so Luke introduced us, and he tells us that Mary is a follower of Jesus. But before that ever happened, before she ever decided to, to devote her life to Jesus, she was cured of demon possession. Jesus came into her life and healed her spiritually and physically. Her life had been changed by Jesus. She experienced freedom through Jesus. Now, it's easy to get caught up in the demon possession part, which I totally understand. And scholars believe that there are two explanations for this. The first, and what they believe is actually most likely, is that she was struggling with epilepsy or seizures. But because of the lack of knowledge in medicine, it's assumed that it was demon possession. They kind of made that assumption. Now, some scholars also believe that it was literal demons. But either way, no matter where you stand, or no matter what you want to believe, or no matter what you want to think is true, here's the thing. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that Mary had it bad. What matters is that Mary was an outcast in society. What matters is that Mary was hopeless, and Jesus gave her her life back. And because of that, she devoted her entire life to following him. And so Mary was there when Jesus was crucified. She watched the whole thing happen, and she ends up being the first person to see the empty tomb. The story continues. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So immediately she runs back to Peter and John, who wrote the book of John, to let them know that something was wrong. Now her assumption is that someone had stolen the body, ignoring the fact that over and over and over again, Jesus had said, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to come back. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to come back. But again, Mary's the first person to see it, and so she's the first person to bring that news to other people. And again, this isn't a small thing. This is a huge deal. In Jesus' time, women lacked any real value. Husbands could actually divorce their wives for any reason because women were considered property. Culturally, women were not allowed to give testimony in court because their word wasn't valued. During that time, women were second-class citizens. But that's not how Jesus treated women. Jesus elevated their status and he argued for their value, and Mary felt that. Mary experienced that. Mary and so many other people that were labeled outcasts found love and value through Jesus. And so if you've ever wondered if Jesus values you and loves you, this story proves your worth to him. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. It doesn't matter if you're singled, single, married, or divorced. It doesn't matter if you're addiction-free or in the midst of a battle. It doesn't matter if you have kids, long for kids, or kids terrify you. God values you, and he loves you. And he wants you to experience that ho the hope that comes with the resurrection. And Mary is proof that that's true. Of all the people that God could have used to bring the news that the tomb was empty, God used a woman who was once demon-possessed. 
a woman who wasn't married and culturally lacked value, a woman who was called to give an eyewitness testimony that the tomb was empty, that technically wouldn't even stand up in court. That's who God chose to use to bring that news to everybody else. And when she did, do you know what the disciples did when Mary brought that to them? They listened. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Just a quick side note. John, who's writing this book, is the other disciple. So I love how this is like the most serious moment of their life, right? Like this is the most like heartbreaking, grief-filled moment of their life. They're about to see this empty tomb that Jesus had promised. Like it's all coming together. And John's like, hey, I'm faster than Peter, just so you guys all know that when you read this story. So John gets there, then Peter. But when they get there, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. And they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. When John writes this, he writes that phrase, he saw and believed. He's he's talking about himself. And it wasn't that Jesus saw and believed that Jesus resurrected from the dead, right? Because the verse right after that explains that John still wasn't sure. Peter still wasn't sure. So when he writes, he saw and believed, he's letting everyone know that he saw and believed what Mary had said. He saw and believed that Jesus was gone, but they still thought his body was stolen, and so John and Peter, they head back to the disciples. They head back to the other 12 that are, that are waiting. There's a, the, more than 12. There's a room full of people that are waiting to hear this news to figure out what's going on. So they run back to him, but Mary stays. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and, one, uh, and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Now reality has set in for Mary that Jesus is gone. Like it finally makes sense that his body is not there. And so Mary weeps. Jesus had changed her life. He had given her value. He had given her freedom, and he was gone. And so she breaks down crying. Right before Jesus' death, he had promised his followers that there would be grief. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so Jesus let his followers know, hey, there's going to be trouble. Like, there's going to be storms. There's going to be things in your life that are hard. And this is a fact for not just the disciples. It's a fact for all of us. And trust me, a lot of us are feeling that right now. But Jesus also told his disciples and his followers that he would overcome the world. And Mary knows that. Mary had seen him change her life. Mary had seen him cure other people. Mary had seen him heal people. Mary had seen him do miraculous things. But in this moment, she's sad. Because even though hope has come, she can still grieve. And some of you are here today and you're experiencing those troubles, those storms. And I want you to know that it's okay to be grieved. It's okay to break down and cry. It's okay to feel the pain of brokenness. Following Jesus doesn't mean there won't be grief. And it doesn't mean you have to put on a good face and pretend like everything's okay while your world falls apart around you. Hope and grief aren't mutually exclusive. Because just because you have hope doesn't mean you can't grieve. 
Sometimes churches or Christians like to tell you that if you have Jesus in your life, you should never feel pain or grief or sorrow, and that's just not true. Mary's life was changed forever by Jesus, and she still wept when she thought he was gone. As she wept, the story continues. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to Mary, or Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. This is one of the most beautiful moments in the Bible. Mary, who is grieved by the loss of her Savior, desperate for answers to where Jesus has been taken, enough to where she would say, Hey, just tell me where he is, and I'm going to bring him back. Tell me where he is, and I'll take care of him. Tell me where he is so I can see him, so I can find him, so I can take care of this. Tell me where he is. Tears are streaming down her face, and Jesus is standing right there with her, and she doesn't even recognize it. This is just like us when we're going through the storms in our lives. We don't always realize or even believe that Jesus is there. But just as Jesus promised, he would always be with us. And it was in this moment when Jesus called out to Mary that she realized that, that she recognized that that was true. She had heard Jesus say, I will always be with you. But it was in this moment when, she, when he called out her name that she realized that it was happening. And I don't know what you're going through in your life. I have a really small opportunity to hear stories of people that go to this church. And one thing I do know that when it comes to this church is that so many of you are going through storms that are unrelenting. Storms that you didn't cause, Storms that you feel lost in. Storms that leave you on your knees weeping. And this story teaches us that in those moments, we're not alone. That God is with you. He hears your prayers. He sees your tears. He's calling you by name. But the question is, how do you respond? Today, there are five people who are responding to Jesus calling out to them, and they're getting baptized. Baptism literally means to be immersed in, in water. It's the death of your old self and the resurrection of your new self that's made free in Christ. Peter, who is with John at the empty tomb, the guy who got there second, right? Peter, who is there with him, teaches us that through repentance and baptism, our sins are forgiven and we are set free. So after church day, we celebrate five people who have been through storms. Five people who are going through storms right now, and five people who recognize that one day storms will come. And we're going to celebrate the fact that they're putting their faith and trust in Jesus. So for some of you, you feel that. Like you hear that. You know Jesus is calling out to you. You feel that nudge. So the question is, how do you respond and for some of you, it's baptism. It's taking that step. It's the thing that we're celebrating later. It's something that is just one thing that we love to celebrate. Are people taking that step to put their full faith in Jesus? It doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It just means that you put Jesus first. And so for some of you, you felt that nudge. You feel that call. And so what we want to do is I want to have a conversation with you. Because we understand the fear that goes into it. We understand the anxiety that goes into it. But that shouldn't stop you from taking that step. If you're one of those people, check off on your connection card. Come talk to me because I'd love to talk about you taking that next step. For some of you, it means taking a step today to making Jesus the priority of your life. Not just something you do secondary. To be honest, not just something you do on Christmas and Easter. 
but something that Jesus who, who infiltrates your life and integrates into your life and impacts your relationships and your job and your mornings and your afternoons and your storms and all of those things. So for some of you, it's making that priority happen. For some of you, maybe you feel that nudge or that call to simply come back next week to see if Jesus really can bring hope. Something we say at Collective all the time is that there are people here that will tell you that Jesus has changed their life. And if you don't believe that's true, if you're skeptical about that or doubtful about that, one, that's good. But two, what's the worst that could happen if you gave it a shot? What's the worst that could happen if you took a step today to move closer to having a relationship with him? But no matter where you are, no matter what that nudge is, no matter what that calling is, no matter what that push is, I want you to know that he sees you and he cares. The story finishes, starting in verse 17. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. It's finally in this moment where Mary realizes that the prophecies from the Old Testament and the promises of Jesus are true. It was in this moment that she finally understood that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to earth to live a perfect life, to experience a brutal death, and be raised from the dead, to not only prove that he is the Son, that he is God, but to prove to everyone that his promises were true. And this is news. This is good news for everyone. Because what this means is you don't have to have a perfect past or a perfect present, because God sent his Son to die so that you can be saved. And he asks Mary to bring that message to disciples so they can bring that to everyone else. And here's the thing. I know that you're skeptical. I, I know that you're doubtful. There are a lot of people here that really struggle with Jesus and church in general. And one, I think that's wonderful. You should be skeptical and you should be doubtful. But in that, you need to pursue what truth looks like. The other thing is this. Collective is a place where you can belong before you believe. And so you can be a part of this community, you can be a part of our communities during the week, you can serve here in this church before you're ever sure that Jesus is real, before you're ever sure that Jesus is the Son of God. But I'm here today to tell you that hope is real. And I know we want that hope, and I know we need that hope. But the reality is it all hinges on the resurrection. So the question is, how can we be confident that the resurrection actually happened? So I have a daughter, she turns three at the end of this month, and one of our biggest battles right now is that she's constantly putting her finger in her nose. And so we're constantly asking her to stop. It's like, take your finger out of your nose, take your finger out of your nose, take your finger out of your nose. Even when she's in the back seat and we can't see her, she's talking and we can tell her finger's in her nose. And we're telling her, take your finger out of your nose. And so on Wednesday morning, she came up to me. I was doing some dishes, getting ready for work and to bring her to school. And she said, Dad, I didn't eat my booger. <laughs> and so I paused and I looked at her and I said, that's good, Elise. You shouldn't eat boogers. And she goes, yeah, boogers are gross. And so I said, yeah, they are, which is why we don't eat them. And she paused for a second. She goes, yeah, we don't eat boogers. It's like, okay, you're correct. And there was a long pause. And then she looked at me. She goes, just one time. I was like, just one time what, Elise? And she goes, I ate one booger. I said, Elise, we've talked about this. We don't eat boogers. She goes, yeah, we don't eat boogers. And so I asked her, I was like, wait, did you eat a booger? Like, that's gross. Like, did this actually happen? And at that point, she started twirling because she was wearing a skirt, and that's where our conversation ended. <laughs> now, I'm going to be honest. I don't know if she ate a booger. I didn't see her eat the booger. 
In fact, I've actually never seen her eat a booger, and she's not really a booger-eating type of kid. I know I'm biased. She's my kid, but I don't think she's that kid. But I feel the need to believe that she did, because she told me she did. And most of you probably believe that she ate that booger. If I took a poll right now, which I'm not going to do, but 100% of you would say your daughter ate that booger on Wednesday. But since when is a three-year-old a reliable source? And so why is it so easy for us to believe that my three-year-old is telling the truth, but we struggle to believe that John is? John, who saw Jesus die on a cross. John, who ran to the empty tomb and saw that Jesus was missing. Why is he so hard to believe? For some of you, will say it's because it was written over 2,000 years ago. But what if I told you there are more manuscripts of the Bible than the Iliad? Archaeologists have found 5,843 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. The Iliad has 1,757. There's not one historical book that has more manuscripts than the Bible, and it's overwhelming how much more they have. But it isn't just the amount, right? Like, it's not just about the number. It's about the accuracy. 99.9% of the manuscripts, of the 5,000 manuscripts that they have, are free from what they call real concern. Agnostic New Testament critic Bart Ehrman admits that, in fact, most of the changes found in early Christian manuscripts have nothing to do with theology or ideology. And so what he's saying is that 0.1% of change in all the manuscripts does nothing to negate the fact that Jesus was real, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on a cross and resurrected from the dead. But maybe it's not, maybe it's not the, the age, maybe you struggle to believe John's eyewitness account because he could have been making it up, which is totally possible. But the thing you have to wrestle with is how do you explain the fact that John would later be exiled to die alone on the island of Patmos because he refused to deny the resurrection happened? Like he had the opportunity to deny it and live a life with his family, live a life with his friends, live a life where he grew up, but he chose not to because he saw it happen. And because of that, he died alone. But taking a step further, John also watched his brother be executed by the Romans because his brother refused to deny the resurrection as well. And so you're right. They certainly could have made it up. But then you have to wonder, what lie would you die for? What lie would you watch your brother die for? Or maybe you struggle with the historical details. Well-known archaeologist Nelson Gluick stated, and maybe stated categorically, that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. And to add credibility to Gluick, Gluick is actually Jewish, and so Judaism disagrees with the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And so when Gluick says that nothing is refuted, that challenges his own beliefs. When he makes that statement out loud, he's saying, hey, what I believe is probably not true because the proof that I've seen proves that Jesus existed. Now, this doesn't mean that all places and all people have been confirmed, right? So it's not one of those blanket statements where everything in Scripture has been confirmed. What this does mean is nothing has ever been proven wrong. Nothing has ever been refuted. And so maybe, just maybe we can believe that this happened because they are eyewitnesses who wrote it down, and later died, refusing to deny what they saw. And history and text all back it up. Because the reality is there's something majorly wrong when my three-year-old is more credible to us than Jesus' followers. For some of you, you're in that place, and to be honest, at this point, you're probably just being stubborn. But if you're not into historical facts or archaeological facts, which I totally understand, the best thing that I can do is share my own story. And actually, it's the story of my parents, 
and how the resurrection of Jesus has impacted them in a way that just doesn't make sense. Now let me start with this. When my parents were raising me, they never hoped that one day I would be a preacher and share stories about them. Uh, In fact, I'm pretty sure they hate when I talk about my family. So in order to respect my family and my parents, I'm going to keep this simple. So we didn't grow up going to church. In fact, church was never even something that was considered. And this, this was my whole childhood until some neighbors moved in across the street and invited us to check out their church plan. And so we were hesitant at first. And they kept asking, and we kept saying no, and they kept asking, and we kept saying no. Eventually, we decided to show up at an outreach event, and we loved it. Our family was cared for and treated with value and treated as people that mattered. And so the next day, we went to church for the first time at New Life Christian Church in Chantilly, Virginia. And I would love to tell you that from then on, everything was perfect, that us going to church that us getting involved and serving, that us making the decision to follow Jesus and get baptized would mean that our problems would all go away, but that wasn't the case. In fact, in a lot of ways, our lives did get better. We had more hope, we had more purpose, we had better community. But in one big way, our lives got harder. One morning in 2001, I got ready to head to school And as I walked outside, my sister was gathering my dad's belongings that my mom had thrown out on the front lawn. And this was how we knew that our parents' marriage wasn't going to make it. We had known it was in a rough patch. We'd experienced that. We'd felt that. We'd seen that. But this let us know that it was over. And over the next few years, my parents moved toward a messy divorce. My mom and dad fought constantly. We began to celebrate holidays without my dad. On weekends, I'd come home late late after a night out with my friends to find my mom sitting in the dark and crying. I'd spend time with my dad and watch as his life started to unravel with alcohol playing a major role. My parents were heartbroken. I was incredibly angry, and my sisters were confused. A few years later, things got a little bit more complicated when my dad told us that his girlfriend was pregnant. Michaela was born in the fall of that year, Two years later, my brother Jacob was born. And while all of this is happening, my family is still trying to figure out what role Jesus played in our lives. Because there was frustration and pain. There was disappointment and confusion. And for years, we were in and out of a family storm that seemed to get more complicated every single day. And for years, we lived in this place of turmoil. Now fast forward to today. Right now, my mom is serving in Collective Kids. And on most Sundays, so is my dad. We don't have to keep them in different rooms. There isn't tension. There isn't friction. Just a ton of grace and forgiveness. To make it even better, Michaela and Jacob are back there as well. And so my mom, her ex-husband, and his two kids, my half-siblings, they come to Collective every single week. They wake up early in the morning, they drive through the dark to get here to set up to create a space for our kids and my daughter to bump into Jesus. And if I didn't share this story with you, you would have no idea. Because for the people that are back there serving and for the kids that are back there, what they see is what grace can do. And for the kids that are back there and for the people who serve back there, what they see is the power of Jesus. And so when people ask me, how can I prove that Jesus is real? that he is the son of God, that he is the savior of the world, I share with them about how Jesus dramatically changed my life and my family. 
Because the only way that this is possible is through the grace of Jesus. The only way a family like mine could experience grace and life-changing forgiveness and get through a relentless family storm is because of the hope that we found in Jesus. And only Jesus could take a broken, sinful, dysfunctional family like mine and give them value. And by the grace of God, my family can somehow show that love and grace to each other as well as other people. And that can only happen through Jesus. There is no other place where a family like mine could have value, could have love, could have grace, and could have forgiveness the way that we've experienced it. Jesus' death proved that his promises were true. Promises of grace, promises of love, promises that you are not alone. But it was his resurrection that proves that we could trust him and that he's worthy of being followed. Whether you're in the middle of a storm, just came out of a storm, or you're about to go into a storm, your hope comes from an empty tomb because Jesus conquered death. And because of that, he can conquer anything you have going on in your own life. The resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing because hope came after death. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for hope. God, that the resurrection is something that we can trust. God, not just because it's written in a book, because people gave their lives defending it, but more importantly, God, because so many of us experience what your resurrection can do in our own lives. God, thank you for the ways that you love us and care for us. Thank you that you offer us grace, even though we don't deserve it. God, I just pray for us as we celebrate today that we celebrate the hope that comes with it, the grace that comes with it, the love that comes with it, and those promises that you made that are true. God, we love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.